You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for showing up. Today we're going to talk about wave-particle duality or the quantum mystic idea of being able to change particles with your mind. We're going to talk about the Elenin Comet and is it a dwarf star? Is the world about to end? And then we're going to cap it all off with talking about Nephilim and Bible prophecy. So bound to be a lot of interesting stuff and contentious stuff, so let's get right to it. All right, but first let me talk about a few show note type things. First of all, I wanted to mention Bible reading plans. A lot of you may have heard of these or basically, you know, you you read the Bible this much per day and it tells you, okay, today you're going to read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and Luke chapter 1 and that's your daily reading plan. And the idea is to get you through the Bible in a year. The one I'm doing actually is you get through the Old Testament once a year and the New Testament twice a year. Now, I never thought I would be a Bible reading plan type of person, but I think that it is actually for me. And they now have all these apps that really help you keep you on on target. The one I do has like a five-day-per-month sort of fudge factor, so you can hit this button and it says, you know, update me. And so it kind of like takes into account that you're not going to be able to do it every day. Um, the, there's apps out there. One, one I think is really great is called Uversion. It's, it's basically got a lot of Bibles and a lot of different versions on it. It's a really popular just Bible app, but it also has the different plans that you can choose from. So I would highly recommend that. The one that I'm doing is called the Life Journal Reading Plan, and it is available on the new version of Uversion. So um, that's one show note I wanted to mention. Another thing that I thought might be helpful for anybody that's in a situation kind of like I am in, in terms of um, doing any kind of similar stuff, I've been kind of busy lately with emails mostly, and I am not complaining because that's what I like doing. I like trying to help people with their various issues or concerns or whatever. And I like um, spending a lot of the day doing that. But it has gotten to the point where I'm spending most of the day doing emails and not really getting any of the other things done and other projects. And a lot of things are kind of being sacrificed to get to it all. And, and I realized that something had to be done at some point in order to keep me productive and sane and I didn't know who to go to and I just thought well my pastor he'd be a good guy to ask about that he's kind of an older guy he's been through a lot pastored many churches many years and such so I called him up and he's like hey I know exactly what you're going through and he was kind of like me in that he always was trying to get everything done all, all the time and he said a really great plan which was to think of it kind of like the seven days of creation and that God had each day a specific kind type of task that was done, and he looked back on it and said it was good. Um, and, and basically what he's saying there is that every day have like a particular type of task. For instance, in my case, email, emails. Um, I might have a little too much to do in just one day, so I've kind of set it to where I'll do emails on Mondays and Thursdays and just spend the entire the entire day answering emails on Mondays and Thursdays. And then do projects two days a week and do administrative type stuff one day a week and then rest on um, you know Saturday or, or, or whatever. And then Sunday I do mailings and, and uh, study and stuff like that. So for for at least the foreseeable future, I'm really excited about this new new plan. Whether or not I stick to it, just like the Bible reading plan, is really up for debate. But I think that I will and that I really am uh, excited about it. It feels it feels really really good to have a plan about that kind of stuff, and I feel like I can get a lot more done. Okay, that's pretty much all the show note type things. So I'll just jump in first, talking about wave particle duality. Now, if you've seen these videos, like uh, it's called "What the Bleep Do We Know" or "The Secret," they all well, the secret does to a certain extent, but certainly "What the Bleep Do We Know" and basically every New Age teacher out there takes quantum mechanics and applies it to the idea that we are all interconnected and we can create reality with our minds. Ultimately, I think that the the long-term goal for that is to get people to believe that there is a coming evolution, that they can have superpowers in the new age, and 
Um, there's a lot of stuff that can get sold to somebody if they believe that. A lot of occult practices like, oh, yeah, you can have superpowers and get whatever you want, but you got to read this book and do this spell and do, you know, maybe not spells at that point, but depending on where the person is at, they can get them into meditation and whatnot. Anyway, there's lots of uses for the idea, uh, but is it true? Now, all the physicists will say, this is ridiculous. Why They call them quantum mystics. Um, and the quantum mystics look at the quantum physicists and say, ah, those old scientists don't know the truth about reality like Greg Braden or David Icke does. Those are the guys that we really, that really know quantum physics. And to be honest, it is a really difficult subject. If you want to start looking into wave-particle duality or quantum entanglement, they are pretty heady. But I don't think they're all that complicated in one sense. Um, let me just put, and I don't have a whole lot to say about this. It's basically just one one concept with wave-particle duality. Let's talk about that one, because that's really what often is used in this idea that we can create our reality using something called the double-slit experiment. Basically, photons, uh, which are light particles, if you will, um, they are basic fundamental particles of transmission of energy, I guess, it, and they, uh, there's an experiment called the double slit experiment where basically they don't act like they should if it was a particle, if a photon was a particle. And sometimes it acts as if it's a, it's a wave and not a particle, and sometimes it acts as if it's a particle, not a wave. And it seems to be based on the observer. And so they call it wave-particle duality because you can't really tell if it's a wave or a particle. And the implication or the interpretation of that from the quantum mystics is that the observer is making it happen and the observer therefore can, if he so chooses, you know, meld reality around his, his whims if he was only good enough at, at doing whatever that was. Now that is a, a an interpretation of that that doesn't have any real backing but it's not even about backing i think the question is what is a what is a photon we don't have a model of what a photon looks like obviously because that's the paradox and it's not really a paradox it's just that we don't know what a what a photon looks like we don't have a model for it and so when somebody says i believe a, a photon is a particle and they say, well, that's great, but look at this experiment. It doesn't really act like a particle all the time. It's like, hmm, that's true. Well, maybe the observer is making it happen with his mind, but it is still a particle. And what? And same thing with the wave. The, the wave crowd says it's a wave, uh, but then they've got problems if they want to stick to that because it doesn't act like a wave sometimes. The solution is, how about this? We don't know what a, we don't know what a photon is. We don't know what it looks like. If we knew what it looks like. And what a, what a what a photon what a photon looked like perhaps this wouldn't be a paradox at all we'd be like oh it's that's what it looks like no wonder it does that with a double slit experiment is it I think that it's sort of a prideful thing that we think that well we know what everything is and so therefore when it doesn't act like what we already have said that we know what it is then it must be something wrong with the 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 system you know. It, science has always worked like that. And sometimes the example I'll point out is like, you know, it wasn't that long ago, 50, 60 years ago, that every, you know, scientist with a lab coat and a, and a you know, whatever scientists have, beakers, they all would have said that the universe was a constant, you know, it's always been here. You know, there was no beginning and there was no end. So that's just what they would have you know, haughtily told you that the Bible was wrong because everybody, all us scientists have have in our beakers here the information that says that the universe has been here forever. And then all of those scientists were kind of a little red-faced around 50, 60 years ago when they found the temperature of the Big Bang in the night sky, as Gerald Schroeder uh, puts it. And all of a sudden, everybody had to rearrange their model to to the fact that there was, in fact, a beginning. Now, you know that those scientists would not have preferred to do that, number one. They would have saved a lot of face. Number two, they had to basically admit that the first words in the Bible were true, which is in the beginning. 
which previously, before that time, everybody mocked. Ah, your Bible has a lot of nice stories and everything, but it's obviously wrong because of this in the beginning thing. So, the Bible was proven true. Scientists, again, uh, realize that science is a dynamic thing. We don't know everything there is to know about the universe. And so, as Mike Tater sometimes puts it when these kinds of things develop, is that we're just missing a dimension. If you hear some story, some problem, somebody explains some, some problem that they're having with some issue and it doesn't seem to add up with the information that you have, then the answer is probably you're missing a dimension somewhere to this equation. You need some more data in order to make this make sense. So, um, you know, that and, and the idea of quantum entanglement is a different thing in which I covered to a degree in the Greg Braden debunked, which is basically you know, without going into too much detail, and I know that there are, there's, there's certainly a bigger section to entanglement, but it's a mathematical um, issue that, that results from having, you know, let's say two particles that you know the nature of those particles is often referred to as spin. Let's say they're created in the same particle mine, and they both have the exact same spin, and you know that, and you can always tell by looking at the one particle and looking and seeing it spin, you automatically know what the other particle is doing based on the spin of the particle that you're looking at. So the idea is, is that is fine and good, but what if they are traveling at dimensions of the speed of light away from each other? Then you can still look at your particle and see it spin and then therefore know that the other one... Um, the other one is spinning the way it is based on the fact that you're looking at that one. And so it kind of causes a mathematical paradox because essentially you have transferred information over the over speed of light, which is impossible. So it's a mathematical paradox. So entanglement, while, you know, in one sense is, is true and we are sort of all made up of, you know, the same types of particles, in no way does the quantum mystic interpretation of that makes sense. The idea that we're all interconnected and you can just, you know, the, the whole the whole reality is connected in this idea that you can change with your mind is is insane. It doesn't it 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 only works sort of when there's YouTube video and some cool music in the background and lava lamps going around, then you're like, dude, that does make sense. Um so anyway, and I know I, I, I'm I'm open to some critique on on the finer points of, of quantum mechanics, because quite honestly, I'm sort of an armchair, you know, like everybody that is not a quantum actual physicist. I just sort of kind of look at some stuff here and there and don't really know as much as I know I should. And from what I know I have seen, I know that there is enough that I don't know to, to not speak too authoritatively about it. So, uh, but I do think that that's the main problem with the quantum mystics and why all the actual quantum uh, physicists are like, why do people believe this? It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, so that's kind of a short, short debunking there. It's not really debunking, I guess. It's just sort of a theory. Um, I think a rather good one, though. The next thing, let's talk about the Ellen Common thing. You know, I've been getting a ton of emails about this lately, maybe the past uh, few months. And the idea is that this comet is going into our solar system or near our solar system and it's going to cause all kinds of uh, havoc in the near future. A lot of people tie it to, well, I've seen it tied to everything from the rapture to doomsday to planet X to really, I mean, anything. Any good thing like this will be tied to any and everything, you know. Um, but here's the crux of it. And I took some time here to figure this whole thing out because I have been sort of waving my hand and throwing a few links at people that, uh, that, that, that ask about it. But I decided I needed to dig in and see what I could find out for myself about Comet Elenin. Now, basic thumbnail, guy in Russia discovered this comet, and it is going to be, you know, it's going to have a pretty close path past Earth, but nowhere near uh, as close as other comets, and, and actually... It's really, really small compared to a lot of other comments. NASA, you know, when they when they talk about this and they they debunk it, and there's one type of debunking that is necessary for this, and that's the 
what I would say, you don't really need another kind of debunking, but you know, nobody trusts NASA anyway, so whatever. But I'll just say they're like, okay, this thing is like really small. It's not going to be anywhere like any scary distance from us. There's no possible way this thing's going to have any gravitational pull on the earth. It's so unbelievably ridiculous. That's basically NASA's version of this. And I agree with that. But the problem is, is that somebody has said, or lots of people have said, that it's not a comet after all. It is a brown dwarf star. Now, let's back up and, and determine, and this is, this is why people believe it must be a brown dwarf star. And we'll talk about the possibility of it being a brown dwarf star in a minute. A minute. But the idea comes from this guy named, uh, what's his name? His name is Menser Ober, Omer Bashish. So I think he's like Bosnian or something. But anyway, so every every Elenin conspiracy has recourse to this guy's unpublished paper um, called Astronomical Alignments as the Cause of M6 Plus Seismicity. And the thing that he does is he takes... Elenin's, uh, as an example, he takes these alignments, uh, so-called alignments. Now, his, we'll talk about his alignments in a minute. Um, these would be like Elenin, the comet, as it like lines up with the sun and the earth and different planets and stuff like that over on its approach. He then connects all these like specific alignments to earthquakes. So he says, Japan, you know, the Japan earthquake happened on this particular alignment with Elenin and, you know, certain planets. And so so he's got this big list of all these supposed alignments that Elenin makes with the Earth. And, and you know, you got to imagine, okay, imagine our solar system, the, you know, Mercury is going around at a certain rate and Earth is going around at a certain rate. So imagine all these planets are going around at a certain rate and Elenin is coming from far, far away, approaching a thing. So he says, you know, when, when certain, when, let's say Mercury and, and the Earth kind of get behind the sun and you line that up with Elenin, then that's when like an earthquake would happen. So he's got this big list of these alignment, alignments matched up with earthquakes. And so every single conspiracy theory out there about Elenin says, okay, yeah, sure, NASA says it's just a comet and a small comet, but then how do you explain these earthquakes? Every question is, oh, yeah, how do you explain these earthquakes? How can you possibly explain these earthquakes? That's, that's the big question. So then they say, well, the only way to explain these earthquakes is that it's not a comet after all, but a supermassive object. And this object is a brown dwarf star. So that's kind of how this thing got started. Look at all these earthquakes, but this, this guy uh, in Bosnia in his paper has lined up with these supposed alignments. How do you explain this other than there's no other way to explain it except for it's a brown dwarf star. So I don't know where to start with this. There's so many places to look. Let's start with, well, I don't want to go character assassination on the guy, um, but let's just say he is... Uh, Nobody would agree with him, and he is the guy who wrote this paper may in fact be a PhD, but there is a really good reason why nobody agrees with him. And he says the reason nobody agrees with him is because they are Anglo-Zionists, and you know whatever that kind of gives you an idea of where the guy's at as far as why nobody agrees with his alignment slash Elenin stuff. Let's talk about the possibility first of it being a brown dwarf star. Brown dwarf stars are at the low end about Jupiter-sized. I mean, most people would say a little bit bigger than Jupiter, but let's just say Jupiter-sized. And at the high end, you know, a lot bigger than that. And the concept of... The, keep in mind, what has to happen, they're saying, the earthquakes are there, so this thing can't be what it is. It must be something big. So the conspiracy world, and this only happens in the conspiracy world... They have a method for making, and this has always been with Planet X and stuff like that. They have a method for why you don't see it and why no, no, you know, astronomer or anybody can see it, but yet it must be there because you know you've got this conspiracy thing going, so it's got to be there. How do you make something that's clearly not there be there? And we do that with the brown dwarf star. It's in the real world. The brown dwarf star has its own sort of 
understanding, and in the conspiracy world, it has a completely separate understanding. Allow me to demonstrate the difference. The the it kind of entered into the conspiracy lexicon with something known as nemesis. Nemesis was a hypothetical theory done by a genuinely good scientist who was trying to calculate or trying to figure out why there was this sort of uh, gravitational anomaly in our solar system. It's just sort of a little thing. And, and there was about three or so hypothesis hypotheses as to what why this gravitational anomaly could have been occurring. And one of those was something that was dubbed nemesis. Basically, what he said is it's possible that we're in a binary star system, meaning that we have both our sun and another sun. And the reason why it's not obvious to us that there is another sun in our solar system is because it would be a brown dwarf star. But it would be extremely far away. We're not talking a close sun. We're talking in massively far away, you know, brown dwarf star. And so the conspiracy world sort of picked up on that, and they said that that was Planet X and everything else. And the concept then became that brown dwarf stars means things that can be there that you can't see. Now, the reality of the issue is that brown dwarf stars are difficult to see at that distance. There's only been a few brown dwarf stars discovered, but, you know, and they are like, mil you know, I think one recently that caused a lot of attention on YouTube here, and they're connecting it to LNN, is 25,000 light years away, okay? And that and that's, you know, the potential for, like, how hard it is to spot these things. you got to have special telescopes and stuff at that distance. 25,000 light years away, and everybody's saying, oh, it's LNN. You know, they don't mention the 25,000 part. They just say, you know, these, these scientists discovered brown dwarf star outside of Pluto, uh, outside of Pluto's range. So they say, there it is, outside of Pluto's range, brown dwarf star. You know what that is, Elenin. And they forget to mention 25,000 light years. If this thing was traveling at the speed of light, it would still take 25,000 years to get here. So don't worry about it. It can take, at least on that particular issue. But what I'm trying to say is that Brown dwarf stars are not easily visible at that distance. The ridiculous idea, though, is that brown dwarf stars are somehow not able to be seen even when they're as close as Elenin is supposed to be. And there are many, many problems with this. But first of all, brown dwarf stars do reflect light. They reflect it quite well, actually. Um, they do emit... Um, uh, there's some... They, in, to, to put a long story short, you not only would see it, uh, and to see it quite brightly, as a matter of fact, Jupiter is uh, something that people basically hypothesized was a failed, you know, brown dwarf star. And we can see Jupiter quite well. If Jupiter was as close as Elenin is, we would see it quite well, to say the least. It would be one of the brightest, it would be the brightest object in the sky. Um, so then the idea, and I saw this on one guy had actually realized this, that it would be ultra huge if a brown dwarf star was approaching us. He said, well, and, and, and the big problem with that is even if you, let's just assume that it was completely dark, which is insane, but let's just say it was reflecting no light somehow from the sun and it, it, it was completely dark, you would still not be able to see the stars behind it. But you can go look at any kind of, you know, thing with this comet and you can see that, you can see the stars behind every single place it goes. There is just... There is just no way. Um, and I've seen this guy have a graph to show this. It looks good because he just kind of goes over it real quick. You know, then there's this, this kind of interesting reflectivity thing where, you know, you can't, that's why you can't see the stars behind it. And, and I was like, man, if you buy that, then seriously, there's a bridge that really this time of year, it's really nice out there. Great bridge. Um, I got a PayPal account. You can just, um, Anyway, the other part of this, it can't be a brown dwarf star thing, besides, like, just ask any astronomer in the world, um, is Lenin, what's this guy's name? Elenin, uh, the guy who discovered, the comet was named after, and he discovered it. Obviously, kind of upset at this ridiculous stuff that it, you know, type in his name, and all of a sudden he's an internet, you know, conspiracy icon. And he just did a simple model, mathematical model, of what if you plugged in a brown dwarf star, its mass, into the path of Elenin. You know, just take out the comet, the super small comet, and put in a massive dwarf star. 
and what happens to the gravitational orbits. And let me tell you, you can watch this thing and you can see our entire solar system unravel. And, and you know, already we should be completely dead. I mean, we're talking about a complete destruction of all known orbits if you put in a gra that massive gra piece of gravity into our solar system. Imagine taking, um, you know, uh, Jupiter and and put and, and it's a comet and it, it's coming towards our solar system and it's got this super massive gravity, uh, you know, pull to it. You know, all of a sudden, you know, Mercury is no longer Mercury. It's out where Pluto is, and we're you know completely. Just look at, I'll link this in the show notes just to show you the silliness of the idea of a supermassive object like that being as close as this comet's supposed to be. It is nonsense. Utter, utter nonsense. So back to the earthquakes thing, because I think that's really where this whole thing is. Hey, you know, how do you explain these earthquakes, man? I mean, it's got to be a brown dwarf star because we've got these earthquakes going on. Well, the the guy who, who has these alignments... Um, whatever his name, the, the Bosnian guy, he, you can look at his data and you can see exactly what's happening here. He has basically, there's like, um, he says any earthquake over 6.0 um, is qualified between like plus or minus a day from the, the actual so-called alignment. So you've got a three-day window where anything can basically be a match. And it's got to be over 6.0. So that's the only criteria that, he, that he's got. Now, the issue is we've got, on average, about 140, 150 earthquakes over 6.0 a year, probably more than that. I mean, just today, looking at the U.S. Geological uh, Survey's Earthquake Hazard Program website, just a few minutes ago there was a 6.3 earthquake near the east coast of uh, Honolulu. You know, th there's always these earth earthquakes like every day that's the whole point is that this it, he only makes a big deal because there was a populated area where one happened and so therefore he calls that a, a match basically the point is you could throw a dart at a calendar and you're going to find an earthquake in just a random number generator and i'll put some links about this stuff there's some really detailed you know analysis of this and how ridiculous it is and how random it is um, you can always find an earthquake somewhere. And what's the, the biggest problem with this is not that it's obvious that there's always going to be earthquakes. And if you, it, it, it would be one thing if like you had these definite alignments, right? Where you said, okay, the, these are the 20 alignments that we're going to look for. And they were all like Japan or whatever. But instead, what, what is easy to do is go and find the big earthquakes First, go find your Japans and then look at the look at the quote unquote alignments and then call that an alignment. Like for instance, he's got an alignment there that even according to his own criteria makes no sense. He wanted to put it in there because it's a it's a big earthquake, but the alignment, instead of being actual like planet in front of the, the sun like he does with the other ones, he calls this one alignment because listen, it's at a ninety degree angle. I mean that's not an alignment, even according to his own criteria, but it has to be an alignment because well there was an earthquake there. The idea is, is that this, if you want to know how, how in the world can you explain these earthquakes aligned with the, it, it's easy. Just go find any earthquake. I'll go, and we could, we could do the exact same thing. I could do it with a, we take any earthquake at all and call whatever the, the state of Elenin at that point, call that an alignment. And here's the other issue. If you take what he calls an alignment and he calls an alignment, let's say the earth being on the back side of the sun and on the other side of the sun, therefore, would be Elenin or something like that. Let's just say for an example. Now, that's a match. And he says, look at Japan earthquake right then. Can you believe it? It's a perfect match. But then you don't look at the many times it happens over and over. That happens once a day, right? You know, he doesn't report all the other alignments that if his theory was correct, then you wouldn't have to pay any attention to the earthquakes. You could say, wow, look at this. This is a perfect alignment according to your to your data. This this should be like ultra, super massive earthquake. But there's nothing that day or very little that day. Um, so that one doesn't get reported. Do you see what I'm saying? If, it, if it's true, it needs to work both ways. You need to be able to look at the alignments and say there should be an earthquake th today as opposed to finding an earthquake and then calling whatever that is an alignment. So to answer the question, how do you explain these earthquakes? You explain them because there are a bunch of earthquakes all the time, 
And if, as long as you get to call anything a match, you can never be wrong. And that's the reason why nobody agrees with this guy. I mean, and, and back to the character assassination, just look into this guy. This guy is a, a nut. There's, there's a really good reason that everybody disagrees with this one source for the Elenin is a brown dwarf star and the earthquakes are a result of it and all this stuff. And he is a cra crackpot. Um, so... You know, and there's all kinds of stuff, religious and such, such on stuff going on out there about this issue. And, you know, listen to me. There was another time when a dude thought that a comet was piloted by a UFO, like one of the main proponents of this does, actually believes that it's piloted by somebody. Uh, I won't go into that right now. And that person also put all kinds of significance to an approach of a comet. And that person was really dedicated to it and a true believer. I know that because he killed himself along with 38 or so on other people in the Heaven's Gate thing. They actually believed Hellbop was, you know, piloted by a UFO. It was signaling the end of blah, 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 de, blah. It's not the first time that people have done this. So don't, don't freak out about the Ellen thing, please. Just trust me, it's impossible. I'll put some links in the thing for you to check out some of the things that I've been saying here. Um, okay, let's move on to the final contentious issue of the day, which is the Nephilim and Bible prophecy. Now, I have believed this for a long time, mainly because Chuck Missler turned me on to it. I think Chuck Missler was very, very good and very right about the exegesis of Genesis 6. I certainly believe that Genesis 6 was a Nephilim situation, not a Sethite situation. It's, it's just as clear as a bell to me. But... The concept of the alien situation that we're dealing with now being a return of the Nephilim or that Nephilim are somehow going to be a part of Bible prophecy, I not only don't see as necessary in terms of the prophetic layout, I see it as biblically unsound. The primary verse that I would always hang on to is not the as in the days of Noah thing, because... You know, that is not a good... I could, we'll talk about that. I'll put some links about that one, too, and as well as everything I'll be talking about th this in the show notes. But the as in of the days of Noah thing it can mean so many different things. In the context, at least it means in the situation with just as in the days of Noah, there was, uh, there was salvation and judgment, same day situation. There's lots of parallels that you could make that the world was wicked or whatever. But to say that it's ne necessary that he means that there were Nephilim on the earth in those days is just just not not necessary. For instance, why why wouldn't it say, as, just like it was in the days of Noah, the world is going to be filled with water? Or just like in the days of Noah, everybody's going to be living many, many years, uh, have, you know, you know, have their 900th birthday and stuff like that, just like in the days of Noah. What? I mean, how far do you go and when do you stop? The text has to be pretty explicit about that. You can't just go to the days of Noah and find something and say, hey, that's that's what it is. That's what he meant by the days of Noah. It's got to be consistent with the context. Um, in my video, uh, the pre-wrath rapture, rapture questions answered with Matthew 24, I at least explain one of those contexts, but I'm not not so naive to think that there couldn't be more, but I don't think that it is the, the main thing that I held out with this theory is Daniel uh, and this idea that uh, Daniel 2 verse 43 meant that there were there was the final kings of the earth were going to somehow be Nephilim and they were going to mingle themselves with the seed of men. And that was sort of the one thing I had because Missler goes through that and, and, he, and he makes a good case. And his case essentially is, let me read the passage. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So, he says, I am paraphrasing, that they must be something other than the seed of men. If it says, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So, the idea there is okay. Well, then there must be like non-humans, so therefore they have to, um, they have to be there. And I understand that there is the the verse that's often tied with this of as as in the days of Noah and also after that. 
And I got to tell you, I don't know what to tell you about that. I don't know. Uh, that's a question I still leave open. I don't know what that means. And also after that, that could mean that they were, you know, there in the the Rephaim and everything like that, and Joshua's day, whatever. I'm not sure. I know that there's really good arguments on both sides of that. Um, I don't think that either way it, it, it plays into this situation. Whether th- That's not the question I'm asking. I'm not asking whether they existed after the flood or not and how that happened. That's a question that I leave open. I don't think that either way you look at it, it's necessary for them to be a part of Bible prophecy. Um, And we'll talk about what I think the alien deception is and why I think that in a minute, but let's talk about this verse. Now, I'm going to read from No Nephilim and Bible Prophecy. This is from Nephilim Nephilim Hybrids. I think it's it's a part of uh, StopAlienAbduction.com. So, this is a uh, you know a good website for these these three uh, these three points. There's it's a three part series. The first part is talking about as in the days of Noah. The second part is talking about Daniel two verse forty three, and the third part is talking about well it's related to this one. I think we need to discuss this one first. And so I'm going to start reading about halfway down from this website, and I'll link all of the series which was written by Paradox Brown. Um, you may know as Guy Malone's wife, and she has written this and a lot of other things on this website called StopAlienAbduction.com slash Nephilim Hybrids. So let's just, let's just get to it. Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue of five sections and also one stone, and each correspond to six kingdom. Number one, gold equals Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Two, sil- silver equals inferior kingdom a- after his. Number three, brass will rule over all the earth. Number four, iron, strong as iron, iron breaks all things, but this but this kingdom will break. Number five, iron mixed with clay, a divided kingdom, part strong and part broken. And number six, a stone that destroys the statue, becomes a mountain, and fills the earth, equals the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now these are all the, these are not interpretations that you have to guess at, they're pretty, pretty explicit. The In fact, the entire dream, of course, is interpreted in the same section, section so we don't have to guess. So she continues, who could they be in Daniel 2.43? The word translated they is the Hebrew Hava. The fifth kingdom contains Daniel 2.43, so let's look at the oh, let's look at only the verse on the fifth kingdom. And I have bolded everywhere that the word Hava appears. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter of potter's clay, and part of iron, the kingdom shall be, that's Hava, divided. Um, but there shall be Hava in it of the strength of iron for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with clay and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay so the kingdom hava shall be partly strong and partly broken and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay they shall hava mingle themselves with the seed of men but they shall hava not cleave to one another even as iron is not mixed with clay these verses describe one kingdom but a kingdom that has two divisions, or two parts. The word Hava is used five times in this passage. In three places, the word Hava references to the kingdom. It could make sense that the other two times, Hava also, referen- uh, uh, also references to the kingdom, except that they is plural. What could be uh, referenced to in this verse that is plural? The two divisions of the kingdom, the iron and the clay parts, could be referenced to as plural. Thus, in context, the Hava, which is the plural they, would seem to reference to the divided parts of the kingdom. The two parts of the kingdom would seem to be the most likely suspects for what is referenced to with they. If so, the meaning would read like this. The parts of the kingdom shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but the parts of the kingdom will not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Or... The iron part of the kingdom and the clay part of the kingdom shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but the iron and the clay parts of the kingdom will not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. The most straightforward reading here would be to think that they are the two parts of the kingdom that were defined in the previous verses described, describing this fifth kingdom. That being the case, they would be the two divisions of the fifth kingdom, and Daniel 2.43 describes that they will mingle in descendants, but not joined together and become unified. The word for mingle is only used here in the Bible, meaning mix, mingle, or join together. But but also, the most closely related word to this word means to traffic, as in 
barter, to give or be security as a kind of exchange. The concept here is one of surety, or something given as a pledge, joining two together in a loose way. The picture this paints is these two parts of the kingdom, the strong and the broken, pledging the seed of men, or pledging their descendants among themselves to each other in order to hold together more tightly. However, the two parts of the kingdom cannot actually join into unity, but remain separate divisions of the weak and the strong. Some people argue that the Iron Empire is the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire fell, it was replaced by widespread feudalism, and the practice of marriages used to make alliances between countries were common, as well as alliances of powerful families on a smaller scale. To some extent, the, pra the same practice is seen today in companies, and they go on here. But I would just also say, regardless of the interpretation of this, I think that it is um, widely understood to mean that. Um, one interpretation from... Uh, ChristianThinkTank.com, who I really have enjoyed their, their commentary on certain things, actually mentions uh, Kyle and Delich point out that it was the people who intermarried, and it was just as true in Rome as it was in Greece. A standard ploy of uh, conquered Roman nation, what, nations was to get the ladies to marry Roman citizen men and therefore mingle their families into the Roman power and privilege. Uh, he, so he points out it doesn't necessarily even have to be the the hierarchy, if you will. Uh, but nevertheless, I don't think it really matters how you um, interpret the, the nature of this, and I'm not. I'm going to leave that out for now about about all that, uh, only to point out that that's what uh, I think is in view just grammatically. But anyway, but continue. But I do think the simplest, most straightforward explanation for who they are in Daniel 2:43 is that they are the parts or iron and clay in this reading from the King James Version. It is not that difficult to figure out what was meant by they if one just applies some logic to the verse within its larger context in the chapter of Daniel 2. Therefore, any fair interpretation that sticks to what the text actually says should consider they to reference the iron and the clay parts of what are being referenced to as they. I've heard people say that they refers to fallen angels. There are some problems with this interpretation. With a straightforward reading above, the ambiguity about what they is is clarified and stays within the stated meanings in the context of the passage. So this should be the preferred reading. So there, so there really isn't room to fit in fallen angels into this verse. That being said, another problem is that the gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay, and stone are all defined in the passage as being kingdoms. And the first is Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And he was a man, so it would seem that the kingdoms of men are what are being referenced to here in the case of each and all of the kingdoms. Another problem is that is found in the interpretation of the dream. Immediately after verse 43, in verse 44, Daniel says, And in the days these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdoms the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. As such, the they that is referenced in Daniel 2.43 seems to be further defined from verse 44. Daniel 2.44 implies that they are these kings, and in contrast, the kingdom of stone will not be given to, quote, other people, which implies that these kings are in fact people, and therefore are not fallen angels, but human beings. And so, including the context, contextual definitions from Daniel 2.44, they would have to be kings and human. The dream about, about kingdoms of men is known by men in all cases. Um, they've just got one more paragraph here, but I would also point out she has a third part to this series where it goes through the possibilities of, let's just assume that they is, they is speaking of fallen angels. Even if you just couldn't handle this interpretation, the very verse itself would therefore still mean that there is no Nephilim in Bible prophecy. For example, it says at the end of this verse that the they are not going to successfully, iron is not mixed with clay. They're not going to cleave to one another. To say that this means that hybrids are coming means that you're taking the exact opposite of this verse, even if you assumed that they was not speaking of the two human parts of the kingdom that won't cleave together, but instead talking about, let's say you said it was talking about angels, it would still necessitate you saying that they actually won't succeed in any hybrids. So I would just want to be on the record, I guess, to say that I don't agree that we're dealing with hybrids of Nephilim or that that's a big part of the New World Order plan. I don't see any reason why that has to be a part of this coming New World Order Antichrist system. There's no reason in reading you know, anything prophetically, Revelation or... Uh, I believe Daniel or, uh, you know, any, anything that references the end times, the day of the Lord, that, that requires Nephilim to be there. The 
there is a great deception that I do believe will be propagated because of a belief of aliens. That can happen a number of different ways. I don't think that you need an army of Nephilim showing up claiming to be uh, aliens in order to make that happen. I, I postulated several ways that they could do this without actually having a single, you know, alien show up. And I back this up with the case after case after case after case of people dealing with so-called aliens um, and and it demonstrating itself to be a spiritual phenomenon. Uh, I think Terrence McKenna, of all people, to, to reference on this, um, had he had a really ridiculous theory about what it was, but his, his, his data was that all these experiences showed themselves to be not actually physical but spiritual in some sense. So he, he would always kind of play that up in his sort of take on this, which I wouldn't agree with for a minute, but I think it's interesting why he came to that conclusion, which was that if anybody was truly honest about their experiences with aliens, they would have an element to their story that would make them look ridiculous because it is all, they all sort of have this um, non-physical component to it. Now, of course, when you plug in the idea as the person who wrote this, and one of the reasons they feel so strongly with that about this issue is just the name of the website, StopAlienAbduction.com. They deal with people that have uh, been experiencing alien abductions and have been stopping through their their help these alien abductions through calling out in the name and authority of Christ and these abductions stopping uh, you know immediately instantly that if this was a physical component you know that they wouldn't be in a craft one minute and in their bed the next minute um and these kinds of issues there's a plenty of different ways just read through the testimonies talk with um talk with them about this and and ask them why they feel this way with the people that they've experienced uh, this. Now, the other component that really that, that throws a wrench in these gears is supposedly these alien uh, babies. A very common theme in alien abduction scenarios is that they're taking, uh, you know, they're taking, you know, uh, reproductive organs and all these kinds of things. That's what the UFO channel and whatever I call it. You call it the history channel if you want to, but, but the, the, that's continually played up. And I would say that the obvious reason is because it is a deception. The, these aliens, when they abduct people, are always telling them stuff about New Age concepts. You know, you agreed to do this in a past life, so just let us basically torture you or whatever. And they sort of develop the Stockholm Syndrome. Hey, it's okay that they're hurting me and torturing me and feeling so evil and everything because I agreed to do this in a past life. Or they might, they always, you know, they come from millions of miles away to tell them that the Bible isn't right. And, you know, <laughs> these obviously... Obvious, it's obvious what's going on when you when you listen to these abduction scenarios. They show them these videos that explain, you know, everything. It's I won't go into so much detail, but um, I would encourage you to, if you are skeptical about this, to take some time. Go to stopalienabduction.com or uh, alienresistance.org. I don't know, and just start reading some of the testimonies. There's hundreds of them there. You know, you you got you got your uh, your day cut out for you. And see if you think that I'm right after time. Now, Joe Jordan, one of the guys that has been very public about this and speaks quite uh, quite a lot about this, has been very public from the beginning. I mean, right from the beginning. Now, this is a guy that has dealt with people that have claimed to have had alien babies and stuff like that. And his experience from working with them consistently is this, that it was just a ploy to keep the uh, certain women in, you know, kind of like they would tell, like I was watching something on the History Channel where some guy was told, like I said before, that he was, he agreed to do this in a past life. And so during the whole interview, he was like, yeah, this is all good. And, you know, he was playing it up like it was a really good thing. But in the same breath, he talks about this awful stuff that they were doing to him. So it's kind of a weird thing. He's he's playing it as a good thing. That's why I'm okay and I want to get abducted again and I don't mind going and all these things right next to total torture stories and the only thing that the key component that makes it all stick is his belief that he agreed to do this in a past life similarly with their situation and not everybody's situation everybody has their own thing the women are saying well i've got you know kids up there and they showed me the kid that and i want to see my kid again and all these different things it's just another tactic um rust isdar has mentioned in uh, his courses way before any of this stuff was any kind of situation. He, he mentions that in his dealing with multiples, those people that are knowingly programming multiples, 
And if you hear, you know, I don't go into too much of this, but they use uh, this as part of the programming. They'll tell them uh, in the in these, you know, people that are created, uh, you know, split personalities and then programmed personalities and stuff. One of the components that they'll often say is they'll tell the person that they are a, a hybrid Nephilim and therefore can't be saved and therefore don't even try. Okay, that's sort of uh, that's that's sort of the thing that they they say to these people. Now they. That that programming is just one of many different things that do the exact same thing. There's all kinds of programming to keep them away from the Bible, to keep them. They, Russ calls it revulsion therapy, uh, where as they are grown up, they're they're told all these things about the Bible, um, even to the point where they can actually get nauseous if they look at a Bible. Uh, various things to keep them obviously from salvation. And uh, he's had a lot of difficulty with some people believing so much that they couldn't be saved because they were in Nephilim, so therefore they were totally given to the dark side because they didn't believe it could be. It's kind of like somebody that believes they sold their soul to the devil or whatever. Um, that's sort of a trick in, in one sense to believe that there's no hope for them. They might as well go all in um, when, you know, you can hear testimonies online of people that have, quote, sold their soul for the devil that have repented and, and have been saved. It's not like there isn't a, you know, there's not a... You know, I don't want to get into too much about the, that, but um, and also, if you want to on that on the links here, I'll put on there. I think Guy Malone has written um, "No Modern Hybrid Breeding Program" by Guy Malone. So, yeah, this is a contentious issue. There's been a few uh, super internet fights about it, and I guess I'm just throwing my hat into the ring. If you want to email me about it, then uh, my email address is hmm, Chris White at um, gmail.com. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, so just email there if you have got questions about this. For all other inquiries, you can email me at nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com. And I think that we are nearing the end of this this uh, broadcast. Uh, if you've got any questions for real, don't, don't hesitate to write. Check the links out if you've got any questions about any of the things I've said. And we'll talk to you all later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to NowhereToRunRadio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.